The Dream Cloud Flash Sale is here, today through Monday only. If you want better sleep, you need the Dream Cloud Luxury Hybrid Mattress. Order today and get 25% off any mattress, plus $499 in premium accessories. Visit dreamcloudsleep.com. Hurry, this offer ends Monday. Video connoisseurs Matt here, and I am joined by a very special guest. I've got John Cross from the After Movie Diner. Um, also, Miscellaneous Plumbing Fixtures was uh, the album you've got out now. Uh, where don't no, my, my heart, uh, our, our where our heart could be a shambles is the album. And uh, yes, yes but but uh, but welcome back on the show, John. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. I feel like I was just here. Um, because March became April super quickly. <laughs> it did. You know what I was thinking, too? Because when you were on the last time, we were talking about all kinds of different things. But one of the yeah. things that came up was hockey. And it's like this would have been like we would be talking about the playoffs right now. I know. I know. And it sucks. Yeah. yeah no, it, no hockey playoffs, man. Yeah. I'm missing the Leafs. I know. And, and the thing is, I think at that time, there was even like a consideration for the next podcast when you were going to come on again. It was maybe we'll talk about like a hockey movie with the playoffs coming. And it's yeah. amazing how quickly it has changed in such a short period of time. Yeah, no, uh, it's it's funny. Just as the hockey playoffs were kicking off and just as, like, the baseball season was about to start, which are my two sports. Uh, Me too. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's it kind of kicked us uh, in the teeth, both of those things. However, uh, my friend Nick, uh, who's been on my show a couple of times uh, talking about Don Dola films, um, he uh, and I and Kim and uh, his girlfriend Laurel – we have been watching, or we watched, um, uh, oh, what's the rookie with um, right. uh, Dennis Quaid uh, on the Disney Channel. And then next week, we're watching Mighty Ducks. So <laughs> we're doing hockey and baseball movies. We're, we're leaving about two or three weeks in between, but we're doing uh, hockey and baseball movies. We're going to do The Natural probably with Redford or one of those. Maybe uh, uh, what's the... Uh, I'm going to forget now. What's the no crying in baseball one, the female baseball team one? Oh, that's um, uh, League of Their Own. League of Their Own. We might do that, a couple of others. Uh, And then obviously on the hockey side, you've got like Miracle, you've got Slapshot, you've got, uh, is it Mystery Alaska? Is that one of the ones? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we might, uh, if, if, if this stretches out long into the summer, we might get through a few hockey and baseball movies that way. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, yeah, that's like one of my things I've kind of started doing since I moved down here to Philadelphia, um, because there's so many baseball parks around here, both, you know, professional and uh, and minor league. And so like, I have this thing where I'm going to I try to add a major league park and then however many minor league parks every summer. So this year was Yankee Stadium was going to be the one I was going to add for the major league park. 
Um, and then I was I was considering going to see the Staten Island Yankees because um, it's supposed oh, to be a really cool deal. Have you done it that? It is before? a cool day. I've done it once, and it yeah. was a Saturday night. I don't even think it was a special Saturday night, but if it was, and this doesn't happen when you go, forgive me. But um, when I went on the Saturday night that I went, I've only been once, as I said. They lost horribly. They lost like fourteen-one or something. But it it didn't matter because as the game finished. They uh, set off fireworks um, with like the Statue of Liberty in Manhattan in the background. So you're literally like sitting in because the stadium is right on the water. The, right. the, the Staten Island Yankee Stadium is right on the water. And we were sat. We had a full view of the field and then the, the scoreboard. And then behind the scoreboard, they had the, the fireworks went off, lighting up the Statue of Liberty and the, and the, the uh, whole of Manhattan. And I'm like. I mean, it doesn't matter that they lost 14-1 because this is like the best show in town and I've got the best seats in the house. Um, it was, yeah, that was fantastic. I don't know if they do that every Saturday night, but uh, uh, maybe look it up. And if they do, then uh, go that night. But you've got to promise me, dude, if you come in to watch baseball in my city, uh, we got I got to go to one of them with yes. you. I've got to yep, go to definitely. Staten Island and or the, the both or both. But I, I got to come to a baseball game with you if you're coming to my city. You're not allowed to come to my city and not do that, dude. Yes, I know. I know. I should, I know, I should have mentioned. But I, I didn't even think about the, the the Mets one. I went. To, I went to see the Mets last year. That was like the one that I added for a New York one. Um, and yeah. I was like, I, and it was kind of one of those things where I was like, because as the crow flies, Queens is closer to Philadelphia than the Bronx is. Right. But what I discovered when I got it, because I've only been to New York a few times, so I haven't really done New York that much. Um, what I discovered is is that when you get into you know the the Penn Station area. Yeah. It's a lot easier just to hop on the, the subway and go up to the Bronx and Yankee yeah. Stadium than it is to get all the way over to Queens. It's a much longer trip. And that was also the the, the um the uh, maybe it was September I went because um the uh, the U.S. Open was happening at that time. Oh so, wow! Yeah. Yeah. So it's in like the same area. But um so I discovered I was like oh it actually would have been easier for me to go see the Yankees. Um of course being from you know the the Boston area um it's one of those things where I'm like. Yeah, I gotta you know I'm going to see the Yankees. I gotta make sure it's not a Red Sox game because I don't want to be like kind of like a you know, uh, yeah. anti-partisan or something like that. And so it was one of those things where I was like, okay, all right. So I put the Yankees on the map this year. Another one that I put on the map was um in Providence, Rhode Island, or just outside in, in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Their yeah. team, the Pawtucket Red Sox, they're moving to Worcester. So it would be like my last chance to see a professional baseball game in the state of Rhode Island. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. When's so that like, happening? Well, I was going to – they're moving after this year. So I was going to try oh, to get no. up there this year and see a game. But, um, I, you know, who knows when that's going to happen now? Who knows when they'll, they'll play? And um, the same thing with Staten Island because Staten Island, um, the um, Major League Baseball is contracting a lot of the um, – I think they're, they're getting rid of 40 minor league baseball teams and Staten Island's on the block to go. Oh, um, no, really? I hadn't heard that. Yeah, so because I didn't have Staten Island on the map this year as one to go to. And then when I heard that they were they were on the block, I was like, well, okay, I've got to – fit that one in i gotta make that one happen so well, look if it, if it happens man then uh yeah we we gotta we gotta do that we gotta yes. hang out we gotta get some uh dogs and uh watch watch the game that sounds that sounds awesome and it's funny um uh my friend jay mayo actually lives near worcester mass and okay. um my wife kim was actually born in worcester mass believe it or not oh, wow. um, but but kim and i go to um rhode island every year um in fact, we were due to go in May. We probably won't end up going now. Um, but we go to Musquamacut, which is near Westerly. Um, oh, down Westerly. By the... I love that area. The beach there is nice. Yeah, no, that's where we go. Uh, we're actually really sad because a really cool bar, the, um, the lighthouse actually 
closed down, which was sort of the place we used to go to all the time. It was the one local joint. All the others are like Yahoo joints. This was like a <laughs> nice local joint. And it's the only place that's kind of uh, not open right now. But um, I would, yeah, uh, uh, I didn't even know that uh, Pawtucket had that, uh, that baseball team. But man, that would be cool to go to Rhode Island and see a see a game we yeah well i i know mass and rhode island and and even new hampshire pretty well i've I've traveled the states pretty extensively and certainly while i've been in the northeast i've i've done new england quite a bit so uh yeah i got a lot of great memories all, all around that all around that area even even in uh boston and massachusetts matt even in the, the home of the red sox and the bruins right. curse them yes, yes. well yeah it's funny because yeah i grew up so so if you're when you're going 95 into maine um the first yeah. town you hit kittery that's the town that i grew up in oh okay um, yeah 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 and so you know right across the border was that so like growing up for us like I, you know the red sox was like a big thing like if you, you know to make the trip to go see a red sox game yeah. usually it was like they had a team in old orchard beach you know uh, called the main guides that we would go see they were a triple a team oh, um nice. yeah and guides. they folded wow. okay. yeah and that was like in the 80s and i remember um you know my, my parents would because because i was like you know like i don't know like 20 minutes away from where we lived so it was like you know, an easy trip. And, um, and so like my move down here to Philadelphia, I'm, we're literally a mile from where the Phillies play. And, um, so, I mean, we can actually walk to games here and it's funny that I'm here and I'm like going to like minor league games in like Wilmington, Delaware, or, like Trenton, New Jersey, just because I still have that, like that, that minor league kind of itch, you know, just like I grew up with that kind of baseball. Um, and so it, it's actually cheaper a lot of times just to go to a Phillies game because I can walk there and get yeah. the cheapest ticket and sit in there and watch the game. Um, whereas, you know, the train or whatever it takes to get to New York or, or New Jersey or wherever. Um, but it's just there's like that feeling about minor league baseball that just it's like a I don't know. It's a it's a, a thing where it's, you know, it's a little bit cheaper. It's a little bit smaller. You're kind of more enclosed. I mean, the game itself is not as much fun. It's not as as exciting. But there's like you said, I mean, you see the fireworks, you know, you get to you know, these unique locations like there in Staten Island, it just kind of makes for an interesting game. Yeah, no, I was, uh, um, I was kind of pissed because, uh, Kim and I moved down from, uh, Williamsburg to, um, Prospect Heights in Brooklyn. Um, and we moved relatively near to the Barclays center. Oh yeah. Um, and I was just thinking, Oh, this is awesome. Um, you know, I'll go because the the Long Island team and my sorry, my brain is blanking again. I don't know what's going to happen tonight with my brain That's blanking okay. on this That's podcast right. all the time. That's right. um, the, Islanders. the Islanders, right, right, yeah. right. Of course, the Islanders. Sorry, uh, they <laughs> they were playing in Barclays for the longest time because the um, Col- uh, Coliseum. Uh, they they weren't using the Coliseum out on Long Island. Um, they were using the Barclays and I thought, oh, great. I'll go see hockey. Like, even if it's the Islanders, like I'll figure it out. I know I'm a Leafs fan, but like we had, Kim and I had been to see a a Leafs Islanders game. Um, I want to say two years ago now, um, at the Barclays. And I was like, even if the Leafs just roll into town, like once every few months, I'll go see a game that's, that's in my hood. And then of course, the moment we get here, the Islanders announce that they're going back to the Coliseum and I'm like, ah, yeah. damn it yeah. i could have walked to games like i could have gone to see <laughs> yeah uh, and it's funny yeah because that coliseum that 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 thing is not near any public transportation no. that is like no, way out not. there yeah it yeah. i mean i've heard it's like supposed to be like like you know um i've never been to see a game in madison square garden i, I imagine that must be a, an experience but yes, they say it is. yes yeah it, it's supposed to be like kind of a different hockey experience but also like one that's like 
um, you know, kind of like a, a transcendent hockey experience to go see a game there. Yeah, I got to see the Leafs play at, at Barclays and I got to see the Leafs play at Madison Square um, for my 40th. My friend Nick, who's oh. also the, the Yankee fan, got me a, 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 um, a Leafs Rangers game at, at Madison Square, which was awesome. And then um, we also went to see a because uh, he's a Buffalo guy. He's a Sabres guy. So uh, whenever the Sabres are in town and the Leafs aren't in the town, I'll be I'll be a Sabres fan for one night for him because um, we always go like we'll go along and watch the Sabres uh, either at uh, Prudential in uh, um, New Jersey or uh, in Madison Square. And when we go, uh, I'll side with the just because never the Rangers or the right. Devils, but oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll side with the Sabres uh, for one night only. But, yeah, so I've seen a couple of games in Madison Square Gardens. Um, and, unfortunately, the least uh, uh, Rangers game that he got for my 40th birthday, which was amazing. Um, and I loved it. They did The Leafs did not win, sadly, um, yeah. that game. But they did win against the Islanders when I saw them at the Barclays Center. So that yes, was yeah. Cool. See, I have not been to a Flyers game yet here. I've been trying to find them you know find a good one to go to here um it looks like i was trying to see if my, my wife would go and she hasn't quite felt up to it so i've been like okay maybe i'll just go catch one myself and i was on the verge of picking a game when all of this happened um because it'd been more like one of those things where i was like okay let's find one to go together they were usually expensive too that was the other problem i think one of the things with the flyers here is just everybody loves them so much here in philadelphia that it's like it, yeah and then the other thing too is that if there's any Canadian team that plays, I don't know what that that's about. I guess there's maybe a large Canadian population here or they just travel well. But it's like I think the Winnipeg Jets were playing a game here one night. Oh, wow. And I think the cheapest ticket was like 56 bucks um, wow. for like a, you know, nosebleed type deal. And it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and I was taking the subway that day for something else. And, um, you know, our subway stop is one before where the, the sports complex is where all the teams play. And um, I did see a guy and his wife getting on to go um, south you know, to, to where they were with a Winnipeg Jets jersey on. So go figure that there's probably, they, I guess they're just everywhere. The yeah. Team, team <laughs> so, so it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I get it's weird being a British guy who lives in New York, who happens to be a Leafs fan. I guess that's pretty odd, but even odder, I think to be a random Winnipeg Jets fan in Philly like that, even that <laughs> seems it was, I was, I couldn't believe it. Just because Winnipeg seems like another land, like it's yeah. not even another country, like just another. I have a cousin who lives in Winnipeg and I, <laughs> I kind of want to go uh, visit just, just to, for the excuse. Cause I'm kind of intrigued by the great white North, but um, the, yeah, the, the idea of being like a Winnipeg Jets fan and living in Philly. I mean, I suppose it happens, but the, yeah. It's, yeah. It, it blew my mind. It was funny. Cause I was like, I, I remember been looking at the schedule to pick a game and I was like, is this the Jets weekend? Is that what the, I mean, I was like, that looks like a Jets jersey. And that's like, and it was like the old Winnipeg Jets jersey from the 80s yeah. when they were, you know, sure. before they moved to uh, Phoenix. Maybe he's was, just a hipster, Matt. Maybe, no, he's, maybe he true. went into a hockey store and he was like, I can't get any of these new jerseys. <laughs> right. Yeah, like, that I'm would, that wouldn't be ironic enough. Right. Let me find, what is the most, uh, uh, he went in. Like, he went whole... in with a monocle and a and a dirt mustache <laughs> and walked up to the counter and went, "Good sir, I want the most ironic jersey I can find." And the guy like, was like, "We have a Winnipeg Jets jersey yeah. from 1988." Yeah, he's like, "All the kids are wearing it. The Hartford Whalers, that's old. Everybody's done the whale. You need to get right? the Jets. Nobody yeah. knows the Jets, you know." And, <laughs> like, he probably was. He was probably some. You know, uh, uh, Philly, because uh, you parts of Philly now are pretty hip. Like, oh, yeah. uh, like, um, so, so from the first time I moved over to New York and I was doing the diner, I used to get 
Um, and I probably still could. I just haven't been in a while. But I used to get the Wizard World press passes for uh, Philly Comic Con because it was the oh, closest yeah. Comic Con that they did. Wizard World did um, uh, near New York. And I, I, I would get to try and get like a cheap Mario room or something and uh, uh, come down and, and go to the convention center there and then go to the big um, uh, what's the big eatery, the big food court uh, place right there, Reading Market. Oh, no, Reading Terminal Market. Yes, that's right. Reading Terminal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and really outside of Reading Terminal and like a couple of sports bars and a few other things around that part of town, there really wasn't anything for yes. like the longest time. And the last time that I went to Philly Comic Con, which even now is going back five, six years. Um, but the last time I went, like there was suddenly like all these bijou eateries and little frou frou <laughs> cafes and things. I'm like, it looked like a cross between Williamsburg, Brooklyn and New Orleans. I'm like, what happened even to Philly? Worse. Even worse now. <laughs> even worse. My, my wife grew up here and she can't stand it. Like she's losing her mind. And, and like you see like like stickers. They have, there's like these series of stickers now that say keep New York out of Philly. Because yeah. um, what's happened is, is that like, like I think one area of Fishtown is like one that I think a lot of people moving from New York have moved, have, have taken that one over. But um, I, yeah, I can't you, apologize you, enough. I'm sorry. No, it's like your fault. Not your you, can't, fault but, you can't blame me for the New York hipsters. No, they were no, hipsters. Yeah, no, it's not your fault, but, <laughs> but it is i think it's like it's it's sort of like you know the thing and, and um yeah that area that you're talking about near where the convention is there's a trader joe's there now um oh, a starbucks um it's oh. funny i was going i went to the mcdonald's there it was like uh, it was like three or four months ago i was just kind of having like a kind of like a, a rough time i was like you know what? i'm just gonna get some really crap you know uh uh, uh fast food just kind of binge on it and That's there was right. one of those yeah exactly and they what did they have what was the convention it was um it was like Dungeon and Dragons. Like it's like there's a term that they have for it for the role playing games. It's like I guess it's like not tabletop gamers. Yeah, it's like yeah, something like not electronic or something like that. And um, apparently that McDonald's. Everybody called in sick that day that worked at that McDonald's. They had three people working there literally, and um, the line was just out the door. Um, and of course there was like uh, what was it the kid the kids called them Karens like those moms that are like really yes. obnoxious. Yeah. She's like complaining that they didn't prepare for this convention thing like like philadelphia only has one convention a year and it's just this it's this you know tabletop <laughs> gamers convention that's the only right, thing right. they have and and for some reason they that, that the manager and his infinite wisdom at that mcdonald's only wanted to staff three people because yeah. three people is enough to run a mcdonald's on a normal day but when there's a the, the tabletop convention that's the only convention philadelphia ever has all year if you're the convention center staff. Right. Go to Reading Terminal Market. Like Reading Terminal Market is like right there, and you have like food from around the world. And like it's there, glorious. and they're, they're better staffed. You know, not yeah. everybody's falling in sick there. You know, let us oh have God, our big the, Dude, the 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 fried dough from the um um uh what are they called the the Amish, the oh, little yeah. Amish stall that's in the the um Reading Terminal Market. They're little like donuts that they do. Yes. Oh, oh yeah, Spilers, I think it is. So good. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I, um, I uh, have had some times in Philly back back in the day uh, when I first lived out here. And I'm talking about like five or six years ago and then and then a few years before that. I've been in New York now over 11 years. So um, when I first got here, that was that was one of the things I did. I used to love coming down to Philly as well. It was uh, a, a great town. I really I really like it down there. And I, I've done all the touristy stuff. I've done the. Yeah um the liberty bell and i've done all the historical stuff and i've done the 
the warring uh, uh, cheesesteak uh, stands that are just outside of town. There's like one yes, either side. corner. Yes. Yeah. Well, one either side of the road or whatever. And yes. I've done I've yeah. done that and all the rest of it. I've done all the good stuff um, because that's what you do when you're in Philly. I've gone to all the the Twelve Monkey locations because they filmed a bunch in Philly for Twelve Monkeys. Um, so yeah, I, I love I love Philly, but yeah, well, last time I was there, I'm like, what is all this stuff? Right. Give yeah, me where, where's the where's the yeah. grimy sports bar under the overpass? What is that? Like, there's a sports <laughs> bar that's like under the overpass, just down by the hotels, literally probably blocks from the convention center, like within yeah. walking distance from the convention center. There's like a a grubby sports bar under the overpass, and it's absolutely perfect. It was it was where I <laughs> I got drinks after the Philly Comic Con back in the day, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's probably all some frou-frou wine bar now. I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah. One one suggestion I would make if you get to the market again, my favorite thing to get there, um, there's this place called Beck's Cajun Cafe, and they make this version of a cheesesteak called the train wreck. Oh, it's wow. like, um, you know, the meat, um, cheese, andouille sausage. Um, oh, it's got to like – it, it is – because I mean, people – like that's one of the biggest um, – mistakes people make when they come to Philly is they get their cheesesteak at the market and the cheesesteak places there are crap. Like it just, just, there's no, you you might as well just get, get a cheesesteak outside of Philadelphia if you're going to get one of those. But that train wreck, it's like a, I don't know, you know, if you're like a a wannabe Hunter S. Thompson writer writing for a a, a magazine, (laughs) you'd call it like the the, the twisted cousin of the cheesesteak or something like that. You know, it's it's like some kind of term like that that you'd use for it. But it it is it's probably my favorite thing to get there. um, You know, so, yeah. So every time Mm -hmm. you're back and also if you're ever in 30th Street Station, they have a a location there. Um, So if you're ever taking the train through Philly and you got to stop off and um, get in another train. Well, (laughs) I'm telling you, dude, when all this blows over and we can travel again, certainly interstate, uh, I'll give you a weekend out in New York. You give me a weekend out in Philly. So yes. that's the deal. That's yes, that's how we'll do. We got to do it. Yeah, we'll do, we'll so. do baseball. We'll get we'll get uh, uh, we'll get burgers at Paul's to Burger Joint down in the village, which is my favorite burger joint. Big, fat, juicy meat patties oh. with a. a Oh, it's the best. Handmade, homemade. It's so good. Um, and we'll do baseball and then we'll catch like some random B movie at one of the, the small theaters or something. We'll figure it out. Yeah, um, definitely. but we'll make that happen, dude. We'll do it. We'll do a cultural exchange between Philly and New York. <laughs> yes, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, because yeah, I think yeah, because I mean, we're, we're so close here. Yeah, but definitely once this all bowls over, yeah. I didn't yeah, I didn't know you were I knew you were a hockey fan. I didn't realize baseball too, so that's great because um I mean New York has just so many good baseball options between the two major league teams that and i've never been to the mets i've never been out to uh uh what do they call it now capital yeah, one stadium or whatever yes, it's called no yeah, it's not it's, that is it it's what it's, is the, you know like it's one of those things where like i did it old just chase stay, stadium right but i don't know what it's called now yeah. it's a place to just mark off a list you know what i mean yes. like it's like like the one here in Philly is pretty much the same thing. Like a lot of these new ones that are meant to look like um was it Camden Yards and um right and, right right you know the, you know which I love Camden Yards in Baltimore. That's I think it's one of my favorites. Um, and and that's kind of what they're they're meant to look like. Um, and so it's like. I think if it's your ballpark, like, you know, like I, you know, you know, the Phillies one now for me, just living so close to it, I have like a special place for it. I think if you, you know, if you're a Mets fan, it's, it's a special place, you know, there are some cool parts of it, but it, it's definitely like a, a market off the list kind of one where it's like, you, you want to say you've done them all, like kind of the same thing with hockey where it's like, you know, like the Barclays Center is, is, is probably a nice place to see a hockey game, but it's like, you'd mark the Coliseum off your list. Oh, totally. Yeah. No, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not counting. I'm only counting it. Cause I got to see the Leafs up close and personal 
because yeah. tickets at the Barclays for a Leafs Islanders game was, you know, an off-season Leafs Islanders game. It wasn't even uh, playoffs or anything. It was, it was uh, earlier on in the season, and it was like forty bucks, and we got to sit basically three rows from the ice. So, yeah, you know, uh, it's it's not often you get to see like a, a a Leafs team, especially as as strong as the team we've had the last couple of years, uh, play that close up for the kind of money that I have. So that was the the draw there yeah. um you know anytime i've been either to the prudential or madison square garden it's always been not quite nosebleeds but fairly yeah. high up yeah, there uh, um and so um and i have to say i actually probably prefer the prudential center to um uh, madison square Garden. So it's just a it's like a slightly grungier vibe in when you go out to jersey i just kind of slightly enjoy it a bit more I love it. um one day I will get to uh, what I still call the Air Canada Centre, but I believe is now called the Scotia Bank Arena. Yeah. Um, but I have I have to make this stand, Matt. I I don't mind who buys arenas and and uh, um, <laughs> baseball parks and stuff like that, but they it should be like it it, it should be uh, you know the the whatever like the maybe by scotia bank like that would i would i would accept that but calling it like the scotia bank arena or or even the air canada central though i prefer air canada because at least canada's in the title um but then you you know uh it's the same with like city field shea, shea stadium is now city field i'm like it should be shea stadium by city field or the mets field by shea, by city or something like that like i i don't like these these corporate names in the names of sporting arenas it takes away the 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 sport of and the and the history of it all I feel like yeah that was one thing in Boston that was nice because you know you know I grew up with, with the Boston Garden there and then they closed it and the whole point of the Boston Garden was actually it was the guy who owned Madison Square Garden was making his own he was trying to make gardens everywhere and so he yeah. made the Boston Garden and then when they closed that for a, a period it was called the Fleet Center when the next company came in and you know they opened up the new one and it was like Fleet Bank was the company and that bank was bought like three or four times and finally it's owned by TD Bank and they decided to call it the TD Bank Garden to call it the Garden again yeah. so in Boston nobody calls it the TD Bank Garden they just call it the Garden you know, the, garden, right. the Garden and they're never going to change Fenway Park I mean Fenway right. Park will be Fenway Park until the last Red Sox fan dies a massive coronary but uh... <laughs> yes yeah, and I'll be I'll be honest. I'm again somebody who grew up with with Fenway Park as being my my home stadium. Um, it's I don't want to say overrated is the term because I don't want to tell somebody not to go if you've never been to Fenway Park. But right. the seats are uncomfortable. The 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 angles are horrible. It's way overpriced. Like the 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 ownership, which I should not be complaining about an ownership that has delivered four World Series when I grew up thinking they would never win a World Series, and now they've right. been four. But they 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 kind of build it as like this like amusement park now with the whole sweet caroline thing and all that stuff and um it's you know i think for you know they they call it they call it america's most beloved ballpark i think there are a lot of people that would say their ballpark was better and i wouldn't argue with them and so it's like uh yeah it's one of those things where it's like kind of a love-hate thing that people in boston have where it's like yeah you, you know you you love that it's the, the, the ballpark but you know and, and again with the owners like i it, i don't know how we can really complain about these owners that have you know delivered four championships and they finally went and delivered one for liverpool i guess right i think liverpool or they got the the champions league title or whatever but oh, okay i didn't know about that yeah yeah they, they own liverpool so it's like one of those things where both team um fan bases uh, yeah. boston fans think that the they don't spend enough because they're spending it all on liverpool and liverpool's fans <laughs> think the same thing about the, about the you know, they're spending all their money on the red Sox. so and uh, everybody hates them right exactly um, so, yeah, and all so, the yeah. everton fans are like i'm just glad people aren't looking at us right, exactly. uh, <laughs> what i think it's hilarious is that on director video connoisseur 
where we're meant to be like, you know, B-movie film nerds. We've just spent 30 minutes talking about sports like we're a couple of red-blooded Americans. Right, right. But but we were talking about it in kind of a geeky sense of like we've got to go see these ballparks and everything. Yeah, no, we were sitting – oh, well, yes. We're uh, working uh, with the minutia. Yeah, (laughs) we've got to start an Excel spreadsheet so I can cross off the (laughs) – Cross off the ballparks that I've been to, uh, Matthew. I've got a special little spreadsheet. I've just, I've actually created it on Google Sheets because that way it's in the cloud. Uh, One of the things I was going to say at the top of the show was, um, don't worry, everyone, I'm wearing my hat that clearly says the word podcaster on it because, God forbid, people don't know what I am. Um, Because in Ninja Strike Force, all of the ninjas... Uh, even the bad ninja wear bands around their head that say the word ninja on them. And now I'm sure that that was because um, the producer and director who were trying to capitalize on the uh, Shokasugi American uh, canon ninja film market by uh, uh, sort of pumping out a whole bunch of different ninja style movies um, in Asia. I'm sure they were like, let's have ninja written on them just so that everyone in America is damn clear that these are all ninjas. But can you imagine if Hollywood felt the same way and they were like, shit, what, what if, what if someone in Asia sees this cowboy movie? We better write cowboy on everybody's hat. Do you know what I mean? Yes, that would be great. Or like, yeah, if they were showing like a sport that you know, like baseball, or a sport that you know that they, you know, like like hockey or something, maybe that they don't have. And it's like, yeah, yeah they just all write, ho- write hockey on their jerseys. Yeah, they just yeah. yeah. There's no hockey team. Right. It, it just says hockey. it just says the hockey team, <laughs> and then on the on the yeah, that's all it is. Well, um, but it. no, it's hilarious that all the ninjas in this. Not only are none of them like, even the black ninja, the one they call the black ninja, right. is in bright spangly purple. No one is, <laughs> no one is in black. <laughs> yes. And what I love too about the script is like. It's either ninja and it's written in the script. It looks like like a, an 80s ski lodge. It's like kind of this fancy like lettering, or it's like this like Lions Club Elks Lodge kind of like you know um, like ninja like kind of just like straight like you know block characters um, yeah. that looks like this like their 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 membership lodge ninja well, what, lodge or whatever. What they did apparently, I was reading up on this today because um, this comes fairly late in Godfrey Ho and Joseph right, I think Lund. It's like yeah, it's 88, and they, they had been doing a run for quite some time. Right. And uh, the, of, of what they what they did was they formed a company very early on. They bought up a ton of half-finished Korean films that right. no one had seen outside of Korea. And they had them sitting around. And when the ninja craze kicked off, uh, Godfrey Ho spent a weekend filming a few uh, expat, either American or British uh, guys, dressed up as ninjas in various locales around the, the town. And then he used that same footage <laughs> and just edited it into 500 different unfinished Korean films, uh, essentially. And, um, but it worked because they, they say that any, I was reading up on it and apparently every film festival that Joseph Lai would attend where he was, he was kind of the sales dude. Godfrey Ho was the director and Joseph Lai, the producer was kind of the sales dude. He would go to all the film markets around the world. And at any given time when he would go to a festival, he could sell up to 60 movies at any given time, um, which is unheard of. Um, So they were pumping these out at quite a rate. 
I mean, you think about it. If you were a video store in the 80s and you know that that, that kids and, and probably young teens, um, but even probably even 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 adults were, 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 were pulling these ninja movies, you know, the the show Kazugi's, the, the American Ninja series, um, you know, that those things are just flying off the shelves. It's like, yeah, I'll spend 80 bucks for this ninja movie and it's going to make its money back in a few weeks you know with people renting it um and yeah so it it, it made sense i'm sure at that time to just be like oh and we'll take lion ho probably made their money just from doing the deal let alone any residuals they got from rental houses or or uh screening rooms but yeah i mean they pumped out uh well i mean godfrey ho doesn't he have like a hundred and something credits yeah uh i think yeah. Um, I think as director, he has 149 credits. Yeah. Uh, most of those being um, in the 80s and, and, and early 90s. But yeah, in, in the 80s, uh, he was making, or they were producing between the two of them, uh, about 20 to 25 movies a year. Yeah. Uh, even Eric Roberts doesn't manage that. <laughs> exactly. Or David Dakota. That yeah. there is like the wrong movies. Yeah. Who's like yeah, him and Vivica A. Fox. Like they, they would, they wish they could do what, what, what he was doing. Um, Definitely. And people <laughs> think what's interesting about Godfrey Ho as well is that, that people think it was all about the eighties ninja craze. His first movie in 1973 was called the blazing ninja. Right. Yes. So he's, he's been doing some ninja stuff since, uh, since way back when, he really uh, uh, lit a fire under that ninja uh, bandwagon and got it rolling. Um, but uh, and had, by all accounts, had a fairly um, a prestigious career as well as a first AD on a, a bunch of very well-known uh, uh, Hong Kong and uh, Asian action movies uh, before he became a director in his own right. So a fascinating, a fascinating guy. But yeah, it, he basically made more or less. 30 movies a year and and at least 90 percent of them have ninja in the title right yeah and, you know my thinking about this movie compared to so like, i mean you, you were talking about you know like like uh, rage of honor um and um you know like pray for death you know some of those really big shokazugi ones yeah you know, i think of those ones like when, when you have that friend who who like is a big like they, they only watch like hollywood films or they only watch like like art artsy fartsy kind of you know art house things and that you, you want to like introduce them to B movies and you've only got like one shot to do it. I think some of those show Kazugi ones, those might be on your list of like, you know, this might be the movie that, you know, like um, I think was it Simon Miller from uh, uh, Explosive Action talked about how he showed Avengement to his friends. And they're yes. like, wow, you actually gave me a good movie this time. You usually have, uh, you know, the things are ridiculous that you give us. And I feel like the show Kazugi ones, those can do that. Whereas like the Godfrey Ho ones, those are the ones where it's like your friends have a bad movie night and you want to be the one that has the best bad movie. Um, yeah. The Godfrey Hill ones are the ones that people can riff through the whole time, uh, have a lot of fun with. It doesn't matter if you're paying attention because that plot that, that's in that. I mean, in fact, you probably want to listen to as little of the plot as possible because it's hard to make fun of. In this movie, you had two two guys that were uh, helping to care for um, a, a boy that was developmentally delayed. And so probably the less you hear of that plot, the more likely you're going to make fun of it because you, you really can't make I, fun of I them. didn't even pick up on that. <laughs> I, I There was... Th- there was a couple of guys that were trying to make money uh, washing cars, and one of them was potentially the answer to um, the ninja <laughs> problems. And the ninja problems were, as far as I could figure it, there was a black ninja of no affiliation, even though he wore giant purple spangly uh, shoulder pads, who was going around and killing other ninjas, all of whom were in pastel shades of pink, orange, 
lemon um, and various other colors <laughs> on ninja like um, and without hiding either just showing yeah. right up and just being like I'm here and I'm a ninja um, and <laughs> he had the yeah and he had the the sword of uh, calamity or something what was Cat it the sword of catastrophe yeah. uh which is hilarious who would make the sword of catastrophe right. you know what i mean and is did they start off with the dagger of unease and build up to it like how did that you know what i mean the <laughs> the, sca- the scabbard of mild annoyance uh, the, maybe the yeah. attempt was right it was it, they were supposed to be trying to make the sword of like you know, like like success or wealth or, or like you know you know uh, great things happening or something and and it ended up like something went wrong in the in the in the, the forging process perhaps yeah. and and suddenly oh I didn't mean to do this. Damn but it! I made the sword of catastrophe. Now every ninja in the land has to die so I can get <laughs> ultimate power. Um, so yeah, there's the because the, the main thread of the movie, the, in other words, the bit that that Godfrey Ho shot and then edited into this right. is the bit with Richard Harrison, which is his master dies at the beginning um, at the hand of the Black Ninja, and his dying breath, he says, "Go gather all the other ninjas to make sure that the Black Ninja doesn't kill them, because if he kills the four master ninjas with the sword of insanity, then he'll gain ultimate power or whatever. Right. So that's the, that's the setup. And you go, okay, I'm in for the setup. And then it immediately cuts away from that setup because they don't have anything more filmed for that bit. And it immediately cuts over to what I presume is one of these Korean movies, which seems to be about a couple of guys who are running a car washing business um, one of whom keeps getting fired from waiting jobs, and then it gets. Then they go to. He also has a love of classical music and is trying to woo a woman who is also into classical music, but then she disappears. But then she comes back later in the movie. Um, so once you start to try and follow that second plot, then you really are in trouble. Um, and then ever so often, Richard Harrison shows up very briefly and goes, "Look, more ninjas over there." And then right. there's another fight. And a ninja yeah. dies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did it, I did I cover that pretty well? Is I, that pretty much? Yeah. And the one thing too is that Godfrey Ho does a good job of doing a technique that a lot of directors do when they use Eric Roberts in a movie, and that is you you put Richard Harrison. Yeah. It, in a technically in a room that looks very similar to the one that the characters in the Korean movie are in, yeah. so it looks like Richard Harrison is talking to this 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 actor in the Korean movie who has the secret to defeating the sword. Yes, and we have we 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 we're none the wiser, you know. Yeah. We, you, you this really guy have... who can't keep a simple serving job, right, uh, has got the <laughs> the secret to defeating <laughs> yes. the sword of insanity or <laughs> chaos or whatever it is. Well, he can't keep a simple serving job, but not only does he have the secret to the sword of chaos but he's also a whiz at creating advertising um <laughs> marketing campaigns because his right. second girlfriend he has one girlfriend yeah. and suddenly he hasn't so it makes me wonder if godfrey ho is combining multiple movies here because at some point he has another girlfriend yeah and, and he's in school too he's like in architecture school or something like that and he was all like right. finishing top of his class and 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 all the while ninjas are dying and he's just keeping the secret to himself because he made a promise to his mother that yeah. uh, that he can't give away the secret to beating the sword of catastrophe so ninjas are just dying and i mean and like you said they're, they're like kind of like you know like tropical starburst colors um you know that of like oh, the, yeah. the different shades of pastels. I mean, maybe that's what Godfrey Ho is going for. Was maybe like the the Miami Vice pastel movement at that time, and um, <laughs> when he was trying to cash in on that's that. But true. you know, it, that's the the thing is that like his procrastination and not wanting to tell this secret 
to Richard Harrison is just Still causing people to die. Dude. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, you know, I mean, is it that? And and, and apparently Richard Harris, I guess, he, you know, he, I have to confess, if I was that young guy too, I don't think I would have given away the secret either, because Richard Harrison really wasn't that convincing. Like he he was like, oh, you know, more ninjas are gonna die, and it's like, really, are they really gonna die? I mean, it, you know, you're not really selling it to me that much. Like, you know, <laughs> you look you look like an accountant uh, <laughs> who's here on holiday. Uh, wearing some pajamas, you do not look like it. He's like, yes, but behold my headband. It has the word ninja it's written on ninja. it. He's like, listen, every headband I can buy in this town has ninja written on it. Uh, I could go out right now. It becomes like a whole Big Lebowski toe thing. He's like, oh, you want a ninja headband? I can get you a ninja headband with, with nail polish um, by 3 o'clock this afternoon. Um, so, yeah, no one's believing Richard Harris. Uh, it's. I have to say, it's so there's there's a few things first of all i kind of love the um the cinematic uh testicles that it yes. takes uh to to do what ho and lie did for so long mm-hmm. um and get away with it and still if anything be getting away with it because these things have got uh bigger and bigger as the years have gone on sadly because of people's appetite i think for uh you know so bad it's good movies and yeah. just kind of laughing at stuff ironically but there was a great <clears throat> paragraph from an article that i read today in den of geek from 2015 um which was about uh, uh godfrey ho and um his uh, world of ninjas and i thought it really summed up like how i kind of feel about um these movies and in, and and other kind of b movies from the from the 80s um and the quote is it isn't really about whether these films are good or bad they are so far outside of what constitutes regular filmmaking that value judgments feel redundant i think deep down especially as film grows arguably safer by the year some of us just crave a little cinematic anarchy and like i love that quote like cinematic anarchy because i always feel um, and maybe I'm giving people, uh, you know, Godfrey Ho and his movies a little too much credit. But I always feel like if if someone had like the bull's guts, tenacity and, you know, uh, marketing know how to produce, you know, 700 ninja movies in the span of eight years, you kind of want to just sort of celebrate that you kind of want to applaud it i know we've been down this route before when we've talked about but you kind of want to just sort of celebrate that insanity um and and you know collage is an art form montage is an art form these things already exist within quote unquote the art world and while you know one person looking at godfrey's movies might think that they are sort of um insane thefts and butchering of uh, uh, potentially okay movies, um, you can look at it as this sort of gonzo collage of or montage of insanity that at least has some sort of cinematic guts to it and creates a little bit of anarchy. And I kind of like to look at them a bit like that. Um, of course, I chuckle when like a guy dressed in a bright pink dildo like ninja costume shows up. <laughs> of course, that's funny, but um i'm never to my mind i'm laughing at it because it's it's genuinely funny i'm not laughing at it because i'm above the movie i'm not above this movie i couldn't go out and do this any more than anybody uh uh, listening probably could but the 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 fact that they exist uh gives me uh, uh uh joy and life and and a little bit of anarchy i like that no i 
I I agree with you there. I mean, I think I mean that's, that's like when when I was on your show recently, we were talking about the um my Albert Pion list, and I I put Deceit at number two, where I would have probably put Cyborg or Pion's um his his director's cut of Cyborg because I just love the idea that he made Deceit over three days using equipment that he was forced to rent in order to do reshoots that Van Damme insisted on. He's like, okay, I'm going to take this equipment that I, you know, that, that we're renting to make these reshoots that I don't want to use. And I'm going to use the, the equipment off hours to film a movie, um, you know, to, to get it on the cheap or whatever. It's kind of like, you know, and, and I, to be honest, I think he got a lot of um, his inspiration from people like Godfrey Ho from a uh, serial in Santiago. He said he actually, he said he, he, he um, cut together, uh, trailers for Santiago movies when he was getting started in the movie business. So, uh, you know, I think it, it, it is like you said. It's like this, um, you know, when, like you said. When, when we're laughing, I mean, there there are you know, you know some of the dialogue is funny. You know, like some of the things that, and and I don't know that it, it it's funny because you know Godfrey Ho spent all this work trying to make this really great script and and make the dialogue funny. You know, it's more like just what what comes. You know, what what happens when he's just kind of cobbling together a script that he thinks is going to work. In conjunction with the, this ninja stuff, uh, and and I, I agree with you there. I love the idea of just like I'm going to take these pieces of movies that nobody's using. I mean, when when the the the, the, the camera was in, you know the, the movie was invented in the late 19th century, there was no concept of doing some of the stuff that we're doing with it. Right. And, and I I agree with you there that I think it's the same way that you know they talked about in the 80s how, or you know in the late, the late 70s into the 80s how you know some people saw graffiti. On, on the trains in New York as being like a horrible thing, whereas other people saw it as a really great expression of art, and they were trying to figure. I think there was a an understanding of like what what do you make of this? Is it is it is it vandalism? Is it is it a form of art? You know, um, the fact that they're they're doing it usually in pitch black circumstances. They've got like a little tiny thing that they're trying to you know. I mean, I mean, the, the, what it took for them to make those, whether you you think it's vandalism or not, and it's almost a sense that like. I think there are people who kind of see Godfrey Ho as being like a, a cinematic vandal, vandal of some sort where he's taking these things and cutting them together. But I agree with you there. I mean, I don't know, again, how I feel about graffiti so much, but with this, I feel like it is something that I, I always appreciate these Godfrey Ho movies. Even if I'm laughing at things that are happening in them and I'm getting a kick out of things, I always appreciate the fact that he did this, that he was able to – I mean, he right. dubbed over with new dialogue, you know, all of that stuff. Well, this this was the other thing was as well is that um, considering he's chopping together parts of other movies, the stuff that he leaves in is an absolute delight. There's a sequence with the two guys in the at the table talking about something or other, and at the end of the sequence, the kid runs up with one of those little uh, uh, plastic fans. Um, uh, uh, what are they called? Uh, um, windmills on a yeah. on a stick, kind of little plastic windmill on a stick. And instead of just having the the voiceover be like, ah, nice windmill, and then cut the scene, one of the guys who's talking to the kid in the Korean movie is overdubbed, being like, "You broke it! What did you do? You broke it!" Like instead of cutting the scene, he adds this whole level of apparently this guy is now angry with his child because he broke something that we weren't previously aware of anyway, but he's like trying to lay a drama in the weirdest way possible because the kid's all happy and the guy's all happy and I think even the guy shouting at him has a relatively happy face, but the voiceover is like, you broke it! What did you do? You broke it! And I'm like, that's genius. Just to kind of whip in some added drama about a plastic right. windmill. It, it was just one of those things where I'm like, you could have cut that 
two seconds sooner got rid of the whole windmill you broke it thing Right, right. <laughs> but he yeah. left it in, and I thought that was wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I think just like you know, like you said, like what he decided to do with the the, the that character, and, and it is funny because um, you know, I think the one thing is like you think because he's a ninja, he's actually going to fight people, and he gets like beat up a couple times, and and that kind of thing, and um, but it, you know, he he. Yeah, I think if you don't if you don't realize what he's doing with the movie, if you don't know that he what what he's trying to do, you may not see it until you get towards the end and you realize like, wow, these two plots aren't really coming together, you know, that like they're No, they're, not at all. No. Right. It it takes time to figure that part out, but and I think that that that's probably part of the genius as well with Godfrey Ho is that <laughs> You know, unless people know what they're getting with these movies, and I mean, now they're on Tubi. You know, they're all available on Tubi. So, I, I think that he does it in a way that, yes, some people will probably feel like they got ripped off watching it. Um, but on the other hand, I think more and more people are appreciating what what this is and 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 getting a kick out of it for for what it is. And I I, I agree with you there that there's there's something different about this kind of a movie than yes, you can go through the whole Jean Luc Godard cat, uh, catalog, and and I enjoy his films as well. Um, and, and to some sense, it's almost like a similar vibe where you know Godard would just throw things together and just you know he was trying to make like unfilm in a way. Um, right. You know, Godfrey Ho is a little different because Godfrey Ho is not trying to make unfilm, um, but he's trying to make something marketable. But almost he's almost doing it in a, a way that's even more gonzo than someone like a Godard. Like it's so it's like it's like less up his own ass, I guess, is the best way to think of it. I, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's it's I tell you what, this is this is something else as well. So so after he did his ninja movies. Um, in the 90s, Godfrey Ho kind of um, stepped away from kind of cutting stuff together and actually sort of started making a few movies um, that were as best as he could do sort of yeah. linear stories in, in the very much in the kind of PM entertainment vein. Um, one of the most famous ones is Undefeatable. Right. Another one also starring uh, uh, Cynthia Rothrock is Honor and Glory. Both are, are very entertaining watches. Um, but like. This is where I'm coming from, Matt. Uh, um, like Undefeatable, uh, the the last sequence, the fight sequence in Undefeatable, uh, has something stupid like 20 million views on Twitter because it kind of went viral, and uh, sorry, 20 million views on YouTube because it sort of went viral and people were laughing at it and oh my god, can you believe this movie and blah 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 blah. But when you go to see um, um, uh, Kill Kill Bill or Grindhouse or uh, Jackie Brown or any of the Tarantino or even Rodriguez ones like Planet Terror or whatever like that um, people will like do backflips out of the cinema being like oh my god man that was like the coolest thing I've ever seen oh my god right and they'll get really excited and, and, and just praise Tarantino and Rodriguez to the hill but like every time uh, 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 Tarantino and Rodriguez are doing something that is um, like they're telling us this is cool so when like we do a crash zoom into the eyes or we have someone like tear their jacket off or we have someone wearing like a particular uh, outfit or something like that they're like this is cool see how cool this is I'm going to show you how cool this is whereas when you watch something like Undefeatable um, like the they're doing stuff that is over the top and melodramatic and operatic because that's been the bread and butter of martial arts movies f forever. I mean, they come out of Chinese theater and, 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 and Chinese opera. Like that's where that stuff got started. Um, it was all very dramatic and melodramatic. And secondly, 
um, Godfrey Ho's movies like Undefeatable and, and Honor and Glory and stuff are trying to do things that are like, quote unquote, like Hollywood cool. Like he's trying to take what's in Hollywood um, and, and kind of do like his own insane, like cool twist on it. But when he does it, everyone laughs. When Tarantino does it, he's like this fucking genius. And I think that's where that's where I get pissed off. Like if or like the, the other like the uh, King was just talking because the Beastie Boys documentary has come up to watch on whatever, right? But like you think of like the Beastie Boys doing like that seventies cop thing, right? right? And they're, they're they're all dressed up as seventies cops or whatever. Like people watch that and they think, oh my god, that's so like badass and cool and whatever. But when they watch the seventies Italian cop films that they're kind of taking off, they like laugh at them. Right. And both things are totally legitimate. Like Tarantino, Beastie Boys, fine, love them, of course. But like to then openly laugh or mock the things that those things are coming from you're missing the point do you know what i mean like there's 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 a to, to my way of thinking that kind of like haphazard uh gonzo cool that is shown in either 70s weird italian 70s cop films or 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 mad godfrey ho 90s action films like i live for that stuff way more than i live for the things that are either imitating them or taking the piss out of them you know what i mean yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I, think, I can't think of what I'm trying to say, but I, no, I hope I I've got close. I'm, I'm with you. There. I mean, I think one of the things, like, you know, Ty and Brett um, with their comeuppance reviews, they were talking about how they're, they're called comeuppance reviews not because they're giving movies their comeuppance, but because the bad guy gets his comeuppance. Yes. Um, but then when they talk about movies like this, they talk about it like they're almost like they're, you know, when there's funny things that happen, they're laughing with the movie, you know. Yes. And, and I think that's really the, the difference is like, you know, you, yes, you can laugh at the ninja in the in the in the cutesy outfits and all that because it is funny. I mean, the, the ninja being written across the thing is is hilarious. But yeah, um, it's ridiculous. Yeah, like I said, it's like watching an, a, a spaghetti western, and <laughs> right, because yes. Italians don't know, they've written cowboy across every hat. Right, like it's right, stupid. exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 fantastic in that sense. And um, but you're right that 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 there's something about these movies, especially, I mean, I, I just, it, it's, it's nice to just, you know, you, you get in, get out in 90 minutes and you get to see something that somebody's doing that with, with, with this medium of, of cinema that is just, it's, it's, I mean, like, you know, collage is probably the best way to describe it, but it's, it, it is something that I, I, for me, I just really appreciate. I mean, I, I love the idea of it. I just love the idea of, um, you know, anytime I think of people making lem lemonade out of lemons, um, when it comes to, to art in this way, it is just so fascinating to me. And I also, I, I love it in the sense of like trying to, you know, port myself back to being, um, you know, 10, 11 or whatever. And, and maybe something like this being on TV on a Saturday afternoon or something or a Sunday afternoon, or, um, you know, seeing it in the video store shelves and being like, Oh, this looks really cool. And watching it and probably not really knowing why I'm only seeing ninjas like every so often. And the rest of the time of these guys going around, like with their car washing jobs and stuff like that. Um, whereas now as an adult, it's like, no, this dude just took this movie and, and, and turned it into something. And, um, you know, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I would, I would rather feel the way we feel about it, yeah, or have someone just tell me flat out they're garbage. I think that's right. an absolute acceptable response as well. <laughs> right. Like, I for someone to just be like, "This is ass. I want nothing to do with it." Yeah. Um, I will take those two responses over the person who's like, <laughs> "Oh my god, man! <laughs> like, did you totally see?" That the fucking ninja was like fucking wearing a red thing, like fucking that's ridiculous, man. Yeah. Like I, those people need to be shot out of a cannon. Um, but no, I mean, you know, I will laugh at stuff, and and but I'll never consider myself above the movie. Um, and it was like that. I was watching a documentary recently. I just re reviewed it for the After Movie Diner. It's this 
whole new three-part, five-and-a-half-hour documentary about so-called cult films. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it, it. I say so-called because one of them is like The Big Lebowski, and I'm like, I get <laughs> that people didn't really like it when it came out, but it's not a cult film. Yeah, like, it, people have, Yeah, right. People have been loving that forever. The people who didn't get it when it first came out were morons. Um, and that's, you know, they were just idiots. Because if, like, if you didn't get it the first time you watched it, I'm sorry. I don't know what's wrong with you. But, like, it's fine. Um, but, like, there was, there was a bunch of cult movies. And, and while they did have a lot of stars from the films in the thing, they also had a preponderance of critics as as reviewers on this documentary like talking heads but not one of them had any uh like historical context to any of these cult films or any kind of insight to any of these cult films they just all spoke about them like they were above them and like what well you have to understand like what makes this a cult film is (laughs) and you just say oh my god i just want to fucking toe punt you in the genitals like they're just the worst people and i just anyone who's like above a film even if it's a piece of shit film like i i have no time for it whatsoever the only time that you can you should be able to flat out criticize or be above a movie is when millions and millions and millions of dollars were thrown at it by super professional people who ended up making a a squit. You know what I mean? Like ended up making a piece of crap, like a Michael Bay movie or fucking cats or whatever. Like, look, you had the entire Hollywood system at your disposal. If you laid an egg, that's your fucking fault. That's nobody's fault. But you know what I mean? Like you could have covered that up by getting a a decent DP and a decent AD and whatever. And you didn't do that. That's your fault. Um, but I, I'm not going to get angry at Godfrey Ho for making the films he made. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now, I have a confession to make as we're talking about this. And, you know, of course, I call myself the direct-to-video connoisseur totally tongue-in-cheek. It's supposed to be like this this, this image of me, you know, it's like like um, Alistair Cook with my, like, smoky jacket and ascot, like, watching yeah. Dolph Lundgren movies instead of, like, a, you know, 10-part BBC miniseries on Nicholas Nickleby or whatever. No, um, I love that. I love yeah. that image, yeah. and, but I have to make a confession about this. Um, when I first kind of was getting into these movies about 10 years ago when um, um, people were suggesting I start reviewing them for the blog, um, I confused Richard Harrison with Richard Harris when I saw the name. Right. And I remember the first one I watched, I was like, boy, this guy looks young and buff for being Richard Harris. Um, and right. It doesn't really sound all that Irish. <laughs> Who's either. like an old Irish drunk. <laughs> right. Yes. It's so so when we were picking and I was you know we're talking about a movie for this one and I had suggested doing this one um for some reason I I went back to that place of thinking Richard Harrison was Richard Harrison I was like oh yeah we got to do this cuz it's got Richard Harrison in and you were like well he doesn't have his mustache in this one so it's not as good and I was like when did he ever have a mustache I don't remember that and I got like a few minutes in and of course like like early on in the in the movie Richard Harrison is there like working out doing ninja stuff without his shirt on and I was like Damn it! I did it again. I was expecting, you know, a drunk Irishman to be playing a ninja again. He does and... the most amazing bellow of the word ninja in this film. <laughs> yeah, it is does. absolutely my favorite thing. For no reason at all, it cuts back to him silhouetted by the sun, doing uh, his early morning workout, and at the end of it, he just raises his sword above his head and goes ninja, and then it just cuts. It's like this wonderful cut. It doesn't even let him finish the word ninja. It just, ninja! Then it just cuts like a dead... Oh, it's it's absolutely glorious. Yeah, Richard Harrison, who got his career 
um, after basically being a, a Hollywood contract player, uh, got his career by going over to Italy and starring in a bunch of uh, uh, sword and sandal epics um, back in the 60s and 70s before um, basically making it his home and then uh, occasionally taking jaunts to Asia to star and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I, he is. I mean, he, it, it is. You know, as somebody had joked in IMDb when I was looking at the, um, the user rating, somebody joked that like, he, he, he really showed up for this one because he, he, he shaved his mustache. That's how important this role was that he needed to shave his mustache for it. That he wanted to be a, a classier role, uh, in this Godfrey Ho film. Um, but yeah, it, it's you know, with a lot of these actors, you, 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 I, I think that's another part of it too is that there's this mindset of like, again, you know, talking about wanting to be above it, right? You know, trying to talk down. And this, by the way, this, this may be one of the ones that because richard harrison famously said about godfrey ho that he made two movies with him and godfrey ho ended up putting him in about 10 different movies <laughs> um this may actually because of how late it it comes in yeah. the list this may actually be one where he's edited in from earlier films in fact i'm almost certain that it is yeah that makes sense i yeah. think he does ninja master harry in Ninja Terminator, and I think he does Ninja Master Gordon in the Ninja Squad, and I've got a feeling that all the other Ninja films he's in, like Ninja the Protector, Ninja Hunt, Ninja Dragon, Ninja Champion, all those other ones, I think they're literally edited in. Because he plays like <laughs> Ninja Master Gordon in like 12 different films, and I think he only made one. <laughs> and I'm that, not joking. <laughs> that is amazing. I mean, I mean, see, I like that. I think that's an I mean, yes, obviously here in the United States, um, you know. He didn't it, get paid for it, so I, I think that's why say, he was paid. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would say if you tried to pull that as a director here in the United States, SAG would be on you in a heartbeat. And and probably the Screen Directors Guild would be on you if you were using other people's movies. Um, I mean, I guess Godfrey – no, because, yeah, these weren't Godfrey Ho's movies that he was – these were like these, like, you know, half Korean movies that he was putting together. But they so, did legitimately buy them, though. They bought right, they unfinished bought, okay. Korean movies yeah. for distribution. So that, that was at least uh, – um, yeah, that was at least partly theirs to do what they wanted with it. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah, he would he would have been in in bad shape if he tried. I mean, I mean, well, that's the one thing I know. John Saxon talked about doing non-SAG films, and he almost died. And I think it was um Hands of Steel in that movie. Yes. Um, there was a helicopter crash, and he was supposed to be on that helicopter, and he wasn't, and the, it crashed, and the two people on on board died. And he said, "I will never do a non-SAG movie again." No, I don't blame him. Yeah, no, that that that's an insane film as well. That Hands of Steel. We covered that a long time ago on um, uh, a B movie podcast that I used to do back in the day um, that I haven't done in a long time. But uh, yeah, it's um, it's crazy these stories, and I, you know, that's the other part of it. It's like when you watch Machete Maidens Unleashed and you see those guys. Um, out in the Philippines doing films and, and living close to the edge and stuff. You just think to yourself, the kind of, um, you know, the cinema, the, the anarchists, these sort yeah. of mad, like, you know, we've got to get this shot by hook or by crook. And the fact that you, I, I always love the fact that you have like someone like, um, uh, uh, um, uh, Ciro Santiago, is that his name? Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, Werner Herzog, a sort of, the same now Werner Herzog makes very classy films that people like talk about in lofty terms and da, 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 da. but they're equally kind of like anarchists in the way that they go about making their films or Herzog certainly used to be um uh, in the way now 
Herzog would make these like grand dramas uh, uh, about um, art and nature, um, whereas Santiago would make like little career, uh, little Philippine monster movies or uh, uh, martial arts movies or whatever. But still, um, they have the same kind of uh, uh, cinematic ethos, which is kind of fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing I always loved about Herzog was the fact that he 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 loved like working with Klaus Kinski so much, even though Klaus Kinski was such a pain in the ass, and he was like. I, I need to make my movie with him. He's the only person that can make the movie the way I want it. And he just like put up with whatever Kinski would do because he needed the movie made that best. And it's like, it just seemed like every movie he made with him was like this torturous process that was like almost killing him. But he was like, no, I got to make it with him, which I, I think that's probably the difference between like, like I don't think it's Santiago or somebody like that. They'd be like, if the person gave me a pain in the ass, like I'll just ship them out and bring in somebody else. You know, if Mike Monty doesn't want to do it, then we'll get Jim Gaines or whoever else in the Philippines to make it. So um, you probably didn't have to deal with quite that. But you're like the idea that just like, yeah, this this sort of this kamikaze approach to to filmmaking. Um, and that's why a lot of us really like these these action movies and why the movies today, um, you know, I think sometimes you'll get one. You'll get a, a, a big screen. Eddie Romero action. was the other Philippine uh, director oh. that I was thinking of as well. Yes. I'm a big Eddie Romero fan. Yeah, it's. I think there's something about these movies. You know, PM Entertainment's another one. But I think there's something about these movies that people gravitate to because it, it isn't sort of the, the stuffed collar kind of, you know, uh, film idea that it's got to, you know, I, I think, you know, and, and one of the things I think when people were talking about what Scorsese said about, you know, it, that's not cinema or something like that. I think people automatically thought he was talking about these kinds of movies. And I honestly don't think he was. I think he, he can appreciate a Godfrey Ho thing probably more than he, I think the Marvel movies he doesn't like because they're, they're, you know, sort of like factory produced. Um, I think that, that was his mindset about it and that they're kind of freezing out everything else in the in the market. Whereas Godfrey Ho, I mean, maybe you could say he was doing it in a factory sense, too. But Godfrey Ho wasn't trying to freeze anything out of the market. Godfrey Ho was trying to get into the market any way he could find. And this was the way he found where he was going to take these old movies and make, you know, do something with them somehow. And, and Ninja was the thing to, to put them with. Um, and I think y you have to appreciate that, that this is the, you know, whether it's him or whether it's, you know, AIP productions with David Pryor or Santiago with Corman working together and you know just their, their attempt to get into movies and get into the, the to the market and 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 somehow make a living with this stuff as as filmmakers it's just something that I, I always appreciate oh yeah no com com completely give me the cinematic cowboys any day of the week um the the stuff that they come up with is just so much more inventive and I also think that there's there's <sighs> There's something to do with, um, you know, it's why I like that quote so much, like as movies get safer. It's not it's not always the content either. It's sometimes just the way the film stock looks, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and that's the other thing, you know, like I was saying earlier about Tarantino stuff. After Grindhouse came out, a bunch of independent filmmakers thought it was hilarious to put like fake scratches on all their digitally <laughs> shot films. And I'm like. I get what they're trying to do, but but there's nothing like watching. The, the, the reason why these films, I will always give the time of day or the Philippine movies or whatever it is, is that sometimes it, it's like a horror movie. People watch horror movies so that from the safety of their living room, they can go to a dark place or go to a, 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 a scary place or go to whatever and know that they'll be safe, right? It's walking on the 
the wild side a little bit while knowing full well that you can like turn the lights on and feel okay yeah um sometimes filmically speaking or cinematically speaking and i hope this doesn't sound too pretentious but like sometimes you need to uh remind yourself that not all movies are shot on like you know ux high def uh uh you know incredibly expensive digital stuff and made in 4dk or whatever the fucking terminology is i don't know but like some movies are made scrappy they're made scrappy and they're made in weird countries you probably haven't visited and i don't mean weird and anti their culture i mean just weird and in strange and alien to you if you haven't visited those countries or you don't know those cultures or things and there's something about like seeing this thing that was you know a cobbled together from another movie but also filmed like in in a part of the world that i haven't visited or whatever with a bunch of people who like i say were either expats or film actors on their way down from their career or whatever it is that you're just like at some point someone set up a camera in this weird place and made this weird thing and cobbled it together and got it out and it flew across the world to like america where it gained this kind of like weird little following and something sometimes it's just good to remind yourself that you know before the internet and before um uh, big shiny disney movies and before all this like there, there was just these scrappy corners of the world that shouted loud enough to get our attention sometimes and i i mean i don't know what, what that means but I, I you know it's it's like the the if you just like one type of music then you can't say you like music you need to kind of expose yourself even to stuff you might not like right um you know, I'm not a big dance music guy or a big pop music guy, but every so often there's a pop song you like or a dance beat that you like or whatever. You can't dismiss everything. You have to kind of expose yourself to stuff that is, you know, you have to expose yourself to like esoteric, weird, atonal stuff or whatever it is just to kind of go, I know I don't like it, but at least I exposed myself to it. Um, and I, and, and, movies have to be like that i don't think you can call yourself a movie fan if all you've seen is spielberg and marvel movies like i'm sorry you can't or like jj abrams and michael bay movies like you can't like that's yes that's one type of movie and yes it has its place and i'm not shitting on those movies necessarily but like you can't call yourself a movie fan you know what i mean you like a few like hugely popular films that everyone else likes congratulations but you can't you have to dip your toe in a few like puddles of murky brown fluid <laughs> yes and and i mean you know i think too on top of that too is that you know these movies they don't require the investment as well that that i'm like i'm you know marvel movies coming in at like two hours and 45 minutes um you know and 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 it, that you know, to me, that's a huge investment of my. You know, yes, I'm 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 under quarantine right now. I'm not out doing a lot of stuff, but I still value my time enough to be thinking that you know that's a, a huge investment. Whereas these Godfrey Ho movies, or you know, a lot of these B movies from the 80s and 90s, um, and, and if you go back into the 70s as well, a lot of these movies were inside of an 88 minute range because they didn't want to have to, you know, because you know it mattered. Reels mattered at that time. You know, film costs money, and so you weren't going to, you didn't want to. You, you didn't want to go 90 minutes because that's two minutes of, of footage that you have to have on another reel. You know, it was like, um, you know, those kinds of things mattered. Whereas like, you know, when, yes, when you've got a, a half a billion dollars to spend to make a movie, you can make it as long as you want and not worry about it. And your, your only concern is making sure people stay in the theater long enough.
enough to consume enough um, concessions and make the movie theater happy for you going there. Um, but, you know, these movies, they, they, you know, Godfrey Ho didn't want to go too long because he couldn't make it, you know, he couldn't sell all those reels. And I think little elements like that to me, it, it's – yeah, I, 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 I can appreciate a movie like that more because, one, I'm in and out quicker, um, you know, but also, two, I can appreciate what, you know, like you were talking about with, with movies putting, you know, scratches in to make the movie. Godfrey Ho didn't want scratches in his film stock. He didn't want them. He had to deal with them because he had no choice, you know. Right. He, he, could, he couldn't afford to just go out and buy new reels whenever he wanted to. He was taking movies that they had bought that were already shot and trying to put them into movies with, with ninjas. He had to take what he could get. He couldn't just, you know, say, oh, there's, there's scratches in there. You know, so it wasn't a cutesy thing that he was doing just for the hell of it to make it sound nice that he's going to, you know. It's it, and I, I I appreciate that a little bit more. Like, you know, like you said, you know, kind of, um, you know, what it took to make these movies, how they were dangerous. There was a sense of danger, like literal danger, in, in making them. Um, yes, I wouldn't want anybody to be dying on on the set of making a movie or anybody to get blown up or anything. But I, there's something about it that for me. It resonates in in the fact that one, I don't have to make a huge investment. I don't have to follow, you know, like you said, you 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 weren't really following that plot with the two guys and the kid, and 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 it didn't really matter whether you followed it or not. You could still enjoy the movie to a sense, and I think I think there's something to be said for a movie like that where where it, you know, they, they, I don't know. I think you're you, for me, it's like you're right that for people that just sort of say that just kind of, you know. Stay in one lane and only watch one kind of movie. Um, it, 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 you're missing out because I think there is a, a, a value to a movie like this that it's a lot of fun, but also it's like got... last. It's like last night. I was home. A friend of ours was doing a, a video and music uh, a presentation, and we were streaming that on our TV. And I was just flicking around Facebook on my phone, and I it, Facebook suggested to me joining a John Carpenter group on Facebook. So I was like, okay, I just closed out a bunch of groups, but I really like John Carpenter, and I just bought a bunch of his Shout Factory Blu-rays. And I'm like, oh, I'll go in and chat John Carpenter. I wasn't in there for more than 10 minutes. I had to completely <laughs> bail from it. And I bailed from it because it was a group of people that were like, The Thing and Halloween and Big Trouble in Little China uh, and Escape from New York are fantastic, and everything else he did was shit. And I'm like all right, I can't, like, they were right. attacking Escape from L.A. because of the surfing scene, and I'm oh, like, are you, all, are you all 15? Come on, let's grow the yes. fuck up. Like, the surfing scene is exciting and different and weird and wonderful, and okay, they didn't pull it off with the special effects, but really, you're going to, like, to torpedo a whole movie because of that? Like, that's insanity. Someone else was, like, bemoaning Prince of Darkness. I'm like, Prince of Darkness is one of his greatest films like that's ridiculous that you would shit on that so so like there's so many people out there who are like well i like john carbon oh you like john carbon what, what kind of john carbon films do you like well the thing's amazing everyone thinks the thing is amazing i know that the thing is amazing <laughs> and i know i'm not saying the thing isn't amazing the thing is amazing like it's yeah. in my top five films but uh, uh it's not the only thing he did and then you know people are like well halloween you know halloween's great michael myers michael myers i'm like all right okay um how many of their sequel how many of the sequels have you actually seen oh I saw Halloween 2018. Yeah, well, that makes you an idiot. And then <laughs> you, you talk to him about like, well, okay, but what about like Christine or Starman or Escape from L.A.? Oh, the surfing scene. What about Prince of Darkness? I haven't seen that. What about In the Mouth of Madness? I don't even know what you're talking about now. You know, you're just like, I, I have no time for people like that. Call me a snob, I guess. But. Yeah. <laughs> just speaking about um, Escape from L.A., 
one of my all-time favorite scenes in a movie. And if you haven't seen Escape from L.A. Um, and you want to see it, you know, mute mute right now and come back in like 30 seconds because I'm going to give away the ending of, mo- ending of the movie. Um, but that scene at the end of the movie where um, they are like kind of, you know, like thinking they've got the little control over all the, the grid and everything. And they hit the play button on it, and it's Steve Buscemi as the tour guide, you know, the I Love L.A. playing in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is one of my all-time favorite scenes in a movie. And then, of course, you know, he shuts off the earth, and he lights a match because earlier Stacy Keach is like, you know, old-fashioned stick matches. You never know when you're going to need them. That to me, that, I mean, just think of movies, you know, my, my, you know, kind of those iconic scenes. I, whenever I hear um, "I Love L.A.", you know, the um, that, that that song there. Randy Newman. Randy song. Newman. I was trying to think of the name. I, I had an R in my head. I could, yeah. Whenever I hear that song, I think of that scene in Steve Buscemi earlier in the film. But then, you know, just to, and and, and it, the thing was too is I knew he was going to do it. I knew it was coming. Um, I, you know, or he just had a hunch. I had a hunch that there was some kind of, you know, uh, bait and switch that was happening there. That he had, he had, he had, he had switched things on them. Yeah, it's a ballsier ending than Escape from New York. Right. Um, I mean, Escape from New York. Yeah, he fucks over the president, but like, whatever. It's the president. You get a new one. You know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> to some extent. And I'm sure people would understand. Like, I'm sure people would they would figure that out. But at the end of Escape from LA, he turns off the world, or at least North America, um, and and reduces it back to the Stone Age because he has the cojones to know he'll survive. Right. Yeah. Everyone else might not survive. He'll survive. Yeah. You know what and, I mean? And the character um, magic that. there with the humor of playing Steve Buscemi playing I Love LA, you know, that he played in his little thing when he was the tour guide. Um, it, 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 it was perfect Carpenter, I think, there, that, that mix of comedy and darkness in there, you know, literal darkness in a sense, but, but the kind of that dark humor that he had. Um, I think he was – he went a little higher with the humor part of the dark humor in that movie, and I think for a lot of people, they had trouble. I think they, they went into it not expecting that, and they didn't know what yeah, to do with it. I just rewatched Escape from New York, and I, I – you know, Escape from New York is a classic. It's fantastic. It's wonderful, right? It, it is. It's, it's absolutely phenomenal. But – uh, uh, there is as there's maybe not there's maybe not as much, but there is plenty goofy and plenty like shoddy and pulpy about Escape from New York. Whether it's the dude who, you know, whether whether it's the fact that like in this prison island there's like the ravagers who come out at night and all have like mad hair or whatever it is, or whether it's Donald Pleasance fitting into like a large egg and, and going down like, like air force one's escape pod is this like shonky cardboard red egg or the fact that the glider is like clearly a badly superimposed, like polystyrene glider on the top of like, uh, a backdrop of New York or whatever. Like there's plenty of stuff in escape. All the fucking, the Duke being played by Isaac Hayes with fucking chandeliers on his car. Like there's plenty of stuff that's like ridiculous in escape from New York, but because it's, you know, the early eighties, end of the seventies and it's, you know, it's all fairly authentic and they're not trying to do anything that they can't achieve. Like everything they, they go for in escape from New York, they actually achieve. Um, People give it a massive break because Escape from L.A. came out in the 90s, because it comes out after Jurassic Park, because it had the budget that it had, which was like close to 50 mil, um, which is ridiculous, really, when you watch it Um, because of those things, um, people think Escape from L.A. doesn't hold up. If you watch it knowing that Carpenter 
outside of maybe the thing and prince of darkness has always been making like pulpy b movies yes he might have done it with more class and style and and talent than 80 you know 90 percent of the people out there but he's always been making like pulpy b movies really at his heart when you watch escape from la or ghosts of mars or vampires or any of those later films through that prism knowing that this is just carpenter uh, at a later date making yet another kind of like pulpy fantasy action horror comedy they all are good movie they all stack up like you can't people who watch big trouble in little china and be like that's amazing but then watch escape from la and shit on it i'm like i don't like, what are you talking about? Like, at the end, end of Big Trouble in Little China, for no apparent reason, there's a ball full of eyes flying around, like a monster that's a ball full of eyes. There's yeah. no reason for any of that. But, like, everyone goes with it. You know what I mean? So I kind yeah. of, to my way of thinking, is like, if you like one and don't like the other, you're just being pretentious. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there is a sort of thing, too, where people appreciate stuff from the 80s, um, especially, I think, younger people who, who um, either you know, we're really young when it came like, like, you know, like maybe we were younger when, when it came out or, or, um, you know, people that were, weren't even alive when it came out and they're, they're going back to it. I think there's almost like a, a sense of like, it's, it's better because it's older and they don't, you know, they, they, they don't give things from the nineties. I mean, I, I think there maybe there's a sense now that, that people are starting to come around a little bit more in the nineties, but you know, I can remember movies like, like, like point break, you know, which is my favorite action movie ever with, you know, Catherine Bigelow's version. Oh, that's uh, another remake. one that they claim in this documentary is a cult film. I'm right. like, point, yeah. point break was a blockbuster when it came out. It had <laughs> yes. two of the biggest leading men of the nineties in it. But anyway, yeah. Right. And it's like, it's like people, you know, and, and, and of course, like the low hanging fruit is they've got to make this whole thing about it being like homoerotic or something like that. And it's like, um, you know, you know, yes, Catherine Bigelow, I think, was kind of trying to do something ex- exploitative with, with the male characters kind of, um, you know, just as, as a send up to it. But she does a lot more with that movie. And I think there's just this sense that, well, it's, it's the 80s and, and or, sorry, it's, it's the 90s and Keanu Reeves is a uh, goes to law school on, on or goes to goes to law school on a football scholarship, which is ridiculous. Of course, doesn't you know and it, and all kinds of things like that that happen in it. Um, you know, people named Warchild, unironically. Um, but I I you know I love that movie. But I think if that movie had been made ten years earlier, it would be like you know Captain Blu-ray. You know, give it the, the fancy release, and everybody would think it's it's the greatest thing ever. And I think there's a sense that for some reason that the 90s, maybe it's because of, you know, the bigger blockbusters that came out around those times, like the Lethal Weapons and the, the, the Beverly Hills Cops and whatnot, that for whatever reason, the 90s don't get the respect yet, maybe. And, and maybe the other thing, too, is that the 90s had so many, like, really great um, it's almost like the 70s as a decade for movies where you, 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 you think of so many really great, like, um, premiere films that came out at that time that a movie like Point Break doesn't get the respect that it's supposed to because uh, people think it's goofy or whatever. I, I don't know what it is, but it, it, it is kind of a shame that, like, you know, and I think Escape from L.A. suffers from the same thing, that it came out in the 90s and people don't respect it the way that they do. It, it, they would have if it had come out 10 years earlier. Yeah, I did. I, I can't remember exactly when it was, but I did a, uh, like, a write-up on 90s movies because I kind of got the impression um that uh and i actually compiled like my top 20 of the whole decade um but like i kind of got the impression a while ago that you know um while the 80s will constantly be brought back up 
um, time and time and time again. And I understand why I'm an advocate for them as well. And, and the filmmaking from that era, um, that the nineties, it, it is this sort of like mad lost decade, uh, to kind of a lot of the people talking about movies these days. Um, and maybe it's because the, it, the it, the indie directors took over, but they weren't as like cool or as dark as the seventies indie yeah. directors, like the 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 film brats that they call them, which is basically for people who don't know Francis Ford Coppola, De Palma, Spielberg, um, Lucas, uh, um, um, Scorsese. Uh, that wave in the seventies were called the film brats because they were kind of the first group of directors raised on movies um they they had all kind of all their movies were informed by movies um and then in the 90s you get this wave of directors um you know uh people like obviously tarantino and rodriguez who we were talking about earlier um like spike lee starts firing on all cylinders like in the 90s um you get like uh, uh richard linklater steven soderbergh kevin smith Wes anderson cohen brothers terry gilliams you know all of the, all of them uh michael mann um all keep doing great uh, uh work all through the 90s um and you know you you literally see it, it's interesting, like because of that big wave of indie filmmakers that start coming out, you also get um, the wave of actors who now are kind of like the Hollywood. They're like the the Hollywood stars and the Hollywood elites of almost to rival that of like the 50s and 60s almost nowadays. Those ones that came out of the 90s, whether it's Reeves or Brad Pitt or Clooney or you know any of the people who kind of came out of uh that era um and who are still making movies today um you know it's it's an important it's a like a really important decade and it just doesn't get you know um I put together my top 20 but um you know you have Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead Fisher King JFK Candyman Army of Darkness Tombstone Pulp Fiction Leon uh, the Professional Clerks, Funny Bones, Seven, Strange Days, Casino, Brain Candy, Copland, Jackie Brown, Big Lebowski, Out of Sight, Rushmore, and Office Space. And that's just 20 movies from the 90s. And I'll throw them up against any movie from any decade. Um, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I agree with you there. I mean, I think that one of the fascinating things for me about the 90s is that when I think of some of the, my, my favorites, they were some of that, you know, those those kind of those brats from the, the, the 70s. I think of like Goodfellas is one of my favorites. Um, uh, Schindler's List is, is one of my favorites. And of course, that's Spielberg and, and, and Scorsese right there. But I always feel like the the Tarantino, Kevin Smith ones were the ones that killed the decade because it seemed like for, for B-movies in particular, it felt like every B-movie that came out in the late 90s was like trying to do Pulp Fiction again, and right, and, and and I think that was one of the problems with the with with the B movie in the '90s was that, but I, you know I think to 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 somehow like lump like Carpenter in with that kind of thing is wrong, you know, like Carpenter is, and I think sometimes that's the problem too is I think for some people who don't know a lot about movies or watch a lot of movies, their instinct is to just write everything off as somebody trying to be Tarantino, and right. sometimes they're right. Sometimes the person is trying to be Tarantino, but you know, someone like a John Carpenter is not trying to be Tarantino. He was there before Tarantino, and and you know, he's doing his own thing. And so Tarantino is trying to be John Carpenter, right, and failing exactly. every single time out of the gate. 
Right. I don't care how many three-hour movies he makes in the snow with right. all of the most famous people in the planet. It's yeah. not going to be as good as The Thing. Stop trying. Right. Yes, exactly. exactly. The Thing, by the way, which is filled predominantly with people you've never heard of unless you're a film fan. Like The Thing, outside of Kurt Russell, like when The Thing came out, like most of the cast were relatively unknown. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's, you know, whereas Tarantino, he's like, well... I have to make this on 70 mil. I have to get Ennio Morricone to score it. I have to get literally 10 of the most famous people on the planet into it. And then I may come close to making the thing, but he doesn't, um, not even in the slightest. Uh, so, you know, um, that that's, I have such a problem with Tarantino. I feel like Tarant, I, I don't feel just like the Tarantino, like, killed b movies for the 90s i feel like he killed cinema period i'm not even kidding you i'm not even kidding you i feel like and it's funny because coming of age in the 90s and and you know pulp fiction was a, a um a seminal movie for me i saw it at a midnight screening with my brother when i was 14 um probably the coolest way to fucking see it ever on like a midnight movie screening at, at 14 um like shit like that never happened back then and, and it was great to kind of have that experience um while that was like a real formative movie and wh while uh, uh uh it had its place back then um i i don't know what good it did like post that what's interesting is for me tarantino became so in the 90s, uh, early 90s, they did the Beatles anthology, which was that six part documentary they did about the Beatles at their like 30th anniversary or whatever. And um, and as a Beatles fan, as as a kid, uh, uh, one of my first albums was a Beatles thing. Uh, I watched that anthology. What I got from the anthology was every time they talked about Fats Domino or Big Bill Brunzi or Elvis or Chuck Berry or whoever it was. I was writing those names down and being like, I need to listen to those guys who influenced the Beatles, because if I like the Beatles, chances are I'm going to like the music, the, whatever. And actually, that just leads you to more music, right? Because yeah. all of those guys were inspired by stuff and whatever. And you just get to spread your wings if that's the kind of thing you do. Same with like Pulp Fiction, to some extent. The moment you learn uh, how much of Tarantino's stuff has always been either heavily borrowed and or inspired by, um, you want to go find those movies. Um, so I think if you are um, um, uh, fascinated enough and passionate enough, Tarantino's movies are a good gateway drug to kind of go back and find the, you know, Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill or whatever, that kind of cult movie from the 70s that, or, or a Bruce Lee movie or whatever it is that he's playing off. Um, but, uh, you know, or hopefully Pam Greer's films from the 70s. Um, but to what comes after him what he inspires um I, I i don't have a huge amount of time for but the people who inspired him and the movies that inspired him he has given me no end of like jumping off points to go find um other stuff and other cinematic uh uh you know corners of the world because i will you know he is a he is a a genuine like video nerd um you know, and and he he is interesting in in that respect. He just needs to 
get rid of his ego. But unfortunately, <laughs> that is that is well and truly cemented now because apparently every time he makes a movie, it's literally the greatest film that's ever been made, even if there's uh, no plot, uh, no beginning, no middle, no end, and no end in sight, seemingly. Um, no. Well, I guess you know, speaking right now, now, yeah, and I think for me with with Tarantino, it's like Pulp Fiction is it was so such a big film for me, like I loved it so much that it's almost like every you know, like I I will watch the next Tarantino movie if if it's you know available for free for me to stream. I don't I haven't paid for one of his in a while, but um, I will watch it just because of the you know I want to see what the right. next thing. Is. I mean, I, there are moments in his movies that are like like Jackie Brown, for example. I, I the 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 Robert De Niro Samuel L. Jackson part I, I could you know wasn't really that great but the Pam Greer Robert Forster stuff I thought was like you know some of the best stuff that, that I saw in the 90s just it's that the best bit. stuff he's ever done yeah yeah it's it's so amazing so I I always watch wondering like even if the I don't like the whole thing but I haven't even seen that in a while I haven't even seen the the Robert Forster uh, Pam Greer and I, I kind of put that Jackie Brown down towards the bottom of my my Tarantino movies because. I don't like the rest. I, I I don't say I shouldn't say I don't liked it, but the, the rest of it didn't work as much for me. But um, but the more I think about it, it's like no, I remember seeing that in the theater. That's like one of the only Tarantino films I saw in the theater was was Jackie Brown, and I you know that was like you know Pam Greer I knew you know I knew a lot of Pam Greer movies going into that one, but Robert Forster was not somebody I really knew that well. Right. And it's almost like for him, you know, a lot of the other movie stars, there were there were movie stars, and they're like, okay, I'm doing a Tarantino movie. I'm probably not going to get paid a lot because, you know, I'm taking a break. So I want to work with this Tarantino guy. He's he was really great in Pulp Fiction. And they're like, I'm a I'm a Hollywood star. Like, what do I have to prove in this movie? Whereas Robert Forster's like, I'm in this movie that's going to be in theaters everywhere. And I think Pam Greer thought the same thing. I've got to hit this out of the park. This is a big moment for me. And and it just felt like you know there was so much earnestness in in their their performances. It, it did make me want to go out and, and it's like every time I see Forrester's name come up on something, I've got to see it because um, I I have just I loved him so much in that movie that I had to see him in everything else after. Yeah, completely. I mean, the the fact that Pam Grier and Robert Forster didn't win all of the Oscars that year is ridiculous um, uh, because the performance of the two of them in that and I get, I, I I would edit out all of the. De Niro, Sam Jackson stuff. Uh, I really would. I just, I mean, it was uh, Michael Keaton is amazing in that movie. Pam Grew is amazing in that movie. And uh, Robert Forster is amazing in that movie. Um, uh, it really is. All the other stuff kind of grates on my nerves. Um, uh, it really does. All the, all the other stuff where Tarantino just thinks he's writing the coolest fucking dialogue that's ever been said by anyone. And I'm, uh, it's just like with hindsight, it's just so tiring. Like the way people talk in Tarantino films, it's just so tiring and obvious. It's, it's, it's kind of irritating. Um, but, uh, but yeah. Um, well, Sir, we have gone all over the shop. I was going to uh, say, I know, we'll probably, we'll probably started probably, with sports, right. reviewed the movie in the middle somewhat, and then yes. ended up uh, in the 90s. Um, but I think the 90s are a good place to end because I think what we're basically saying, Matt, is that we need to be the two guys who put the 90s on the map. We need yeah. to be the guys who get the hipsters interested in the 90s. That's what we need to do. We need to we need to get the hipsters away from the 80s because they they like all the wrong things about the 80s. They don't yes. like the good stuff from the 80s. They shit on the good stuff from the 80s. They like all the wrong stuff from the 80s. 
Um, let's get them away from the 80s. Let's start getting them talking about the 90s. Um, I want to blow their minds with a few 90s things. Um, and I think that's what we do. Uh, when this all blows over, we do a new series of podcasts just called The 90s. Uh, and and each, each episode is um, a week from the 90s. And that's we just start doing that, I think. I, I don't think know that's, whether that's... That's fantastic. I think, you know, and I think... You know, maybe yeah. You know, no Tarantino it could be the rule, or, or I guess no. I, I I mean, I think the Jackie Brown conversation would be great for that. But I think yeah, you know, just being like okay, you know, we're we're gonna just talk about some of the stuff that people either pan a lot or just don't even know about. Um, I, there's so many movies from the '90s that are just so amazing. I was talking with somebody about um a movie called The New Age with um Peter Weller that came out like in like '96. Yes. I think that. Oh, I, I mean, I love that movie. It's just one of my favorites. And, you know, and, and he's just so fantastic. I mean, it's Peter Weller, you know, just in it. It's like a movie that was you know kind of an indie flick that just didn't really make it that far. Um, But yeah, Not there's, to mention Screamers. Wasn't that in the 90s? That was another. Yeah, he did some really great stuff. I think, you know, people think that it's like Robocop and, and, and that and, and Buckaroo Bonsai. But, you know, no, he kept working. 95 Screamers. It's yeah. so good. And I just looked on my 95 list, and I don't have it on my 95 list. Oh my God, what an oversight that was! <laughs> well, uh, but, you, you, but yeah, check was out a big year too, you know. But uh, I, I think Screamers is definitely. I mean, even if even if it's not on a top list for for your 95, I think if you're a Weller person, if you've seen RoboCop, no, it should be on there. It should yeah. be on there. I have uh, I, in 90, and you're right, 95. What a year, man! Yes. I had like. I had like 10 honorable mentions because um, I was trying to do top 10 of every year and then I have honorable mentions. Yeah. But 95 saw In the Mouth of Madness, The Quick and the Dead, Funny Bones, Die Hard with a Vengeance, The Usual Suspects, Seven, Strange Days, Leaving Las Vegas, Casino, 12 Monkeys. Uh, that's my top 10. And yeah. then honorable mentions were Heavyweight, City of Lost Children, Demon Knight, Desperado, Richard III, More Rats, and Living in Oblivion. Yeah. It's a pretty great year. What, what an amazing, I mean, the 90s... And Screamers. I like should that. add Screamers now. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, if you go through just about every year in the 90s, it, it is amazing. I think when you get past, you know, the mid-90s, when sort of the, the Tarantino echo starts to take effect. Um, yeah. I think it's like a Tarantino clerk's echo almost. Like, those two really seem to do it. And, and, and Desperado, to some extent, also influenced the B-movie of the 90s. But it feels like once that echo starts to take effect, I mean, there was a little bit of a of, of, of another wave in the late 90s into the early 2000s that saw some really interesting movies. But it, it, it feels like, you know, at that, there's a certain point where I think Tarantino starts to, you know, his effect takes over, but then also the blockbuster studio thing starts to take over where it's just like if this movie's not going to make four billion dollars just you know open it in a few uh, screeners and then put it straight to video yeah exactly um but no check out i i wrote an article the filmmaking of the 1990s and my top 20 of the whole decade uh, on aftermoviediner.com so check check that out because there's some great movies that are worth discussing in that um but uh matt this has been a fantastic conversation sir Yes, I've had a great time with you. Now, now before we wrap up, because you mentioned um, the After Movie Diner site, where where can people find you? Uh, people can find me at AfterMovieDiner.com and all its subsidiary social media sites, which are all anywhere where the words After Movie and Diner uh, come together. That is me. Um, and uh, you can also find me at uh, Misc Plum Fix, which I'm going to spell for you. It's M-I-S-C, like Misc for miscellaneous. Plum, P-L-U-M-B, like short for plumber, and 
fix f-i-x short for fixtures missplumfix.com for all of my music links um right now uh we're still promoting uh where our hearts can be a shambles um the uh latest album that came out in february uh, i also uploaded um uh an album uh that uh, is all old songs from about 12 or 13 years ago um that's a compilation of stuff i found on an old hard drive that i've uploaded and uh i've been i've uploaded uh up to seven tracks so far but all the tracks that i'm recording in quarantine um are going on an album called we're working on it which i'm uh, uh i have currently on soundcloud for free um all the links are available at miskplumfix.com check it out if you like uh weird uh indie rock folk stuff yeah i can attest to 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 the album being great because i i have uh, been streaming it on uh on, on spotify i think it, it it's really great so yeah people should definitely check it out um it's it's you know so um and, and you know you can always um you know i i, I think um I, I mean, every once in a while, you know, I, you know, if I if I see something, I'll definitely retweet it from from miscellaneous plumbing fixtures. But um, I think on the Facebook page that we we I, I have shared some of the links on there, so sometimes people can can see it on there too. That uh, you know, if they uh, forget the link or something like that. And Matt, I was playing around today. I don't know if you saw the post go up in the After Movie Diner Doctor Action Facebook group, but I was playing around today with um, a uh, live streaming uh, platform uh called Streamyard, um where i'm planning on doing some uh live shows sort of in the vein of crosstalk um but uh with hopefully with guests and some interviews um but all on sort of facebook live or periscope or some kind of platform like that but using this thing called Streamyard, where you can uh uh share your screen and show videos and talk over trailers and uh, uh show clips of stuff and have music and all the stuff we were kind of doing audibly through mixler uh you can now do through Streamyard uh using video so uh i will hopefully try and get you on one of those if you're willing to be on camera uh, yes i will have you on one of my live stream interview shows once i've decided what that is and how that looks and how that works yeah, that would be perfect. I mean, I work from home and and sort of have my office set up, so I've got a I, I've got a good background and everything, and I I can always if my if I have a bad hair day, I can always throw on my Moxie baseball cap uh, or something like that. And so yeah, I would absolutely love it. And, and even if it's an episode I'm not on, you know, definitely you know, I'm happy to kind of get the word out, and uh, we can kind of you know put stuff on the on the, the direct to video site as well, because I, I that sounds really exciting for for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know. You don't have to keep that. Let, let's wrap it up, and then I'll just quickly tell you some stuff after the episode's done. But. All right, that sounds good. Well, well, thank you everybody from for listening. Um, you know, you know where um to find DTV Connoisseur. I think probably the, the DTV Connoisseur.blogspot.com is probably the place to go because all the links are there. Um, one thing you keep in mind, I, I do keep forgetting to mention people, if you're going through it on the mobile site, you're not going to see all the links if you're just doing it on the, on the mobile site. So you can always go down to the bottom of the page, click view web version, and you'll get all the links to everything if you need to check us out on social and all that kind of stuff. But um, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you, John, again for, for coming on. It was another great conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. Oh, yeah, it's awesome, Matt. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right, till next time. Bye, everyone. Yeah, so I was going to...
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 